Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two funds. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, I named trading firms who were very involved. Um, Alec.eth is the ultimate puzzle. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So quick intros. First, we've got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Next, we've got Robert, the crypto connoisseur and captain of Compound. Then we've got Tarun, the giga brain and grand poobah at Gauntlet. And then finally, I'm Hasib, the head hype man at Dragonfly. So we are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. Please see Chopping Blocks at XYZ for more disclosures. So we were just freaking out about this new Azuki drop that has got the internet completely lit up at the time we. that we're recording this. Um, Robert, please explain for us. We, okay. We. Robert, please explain for us what happened with this Azuki drop. Can you just walk us through the storyline here? So Azuki announced that they were going to be doing a new collection. And they did this by you know surprising everybody who held Azukis with some like token some uh, a bean uh, NFT, and the bean NFT would become a new NFT called an elemental. And they decided that they were going to give out a bunch of elementals to existing Azuki holders and then sell a bunch more. And what happened was they've raised a ton of money by selling these new elemental beans pre-revealed to people in a Dutch auction. And obviously... Almost every Dutch auction in crypto history sells out instantly at whatever the starting price is because everyone is so excited. I don't know why anyone uses Dutch auction mechanisms anymore. <laughs> it's a facade. It's silly. Just set the damn price. It'll sell out. But each one of these sold for two Ether, and they raised something like 36 or $40 million selling these new elemental NFTs. And everyone was excited. They're like, oh, my God. Like, you know. I should add, so people, the, the, after the... Uh, Dutch auction to the initial holders of the the beans, uh, which is this previous kind of low value Azuki collection. Uh, it was supposed to also go to a public auction, so people in the public could also buy it. But it never got to that point because it got sold out immediately by the by the bean holders, which made the community already very upset about the way this was managed. That's right. And then there were some issues with the website, and it took a while to be able to reveal them. But the long story. Sh- short is once they were revealed, the big reveal that like everybody was waiting to see what these cool new NFTs were, well, they're shockingly similar to the original collection of Azuki's. In fact, I challenge pretty much anyone to go onto OpenSea or Blur or, you know, your favorite NFT platform and compare Azuki's to Azuki Elementals. Basically, it's the same collection. And so in essence, what has occurred is they've, I think like tripled, you know, the number of Azukis out there. Yes, they have a different name, but they're Azukis. They're basically identical. You know, Tom's flipping back and forth between Azukis and Elementals, and you won't be able to tell the difference. 
And there's a couple of differences, like there's new, a couple new traits that the elementals have that the original Azukis don't have. And there's like slightly more frequency of like cool, you know, elemental things like fire and lightning and earth and, you know, all this stuff. But fundamentally, they're Azukis. And they basically use this as a way of like, you know, massively increasing the size of the collection. And so everybody's up in arms. The price of Azukis dropped like 40 something percent pretty much instantly upon this reveal. And crypto Twitter is captivated by this new mechanism called, you know, sell more of the original NFT. Um, (laughs) There there are two main lessons from this. First is Robert retiring from NFTs was a psyop. Total total scam. Total scam. Yeah. Clearly you are still very plugged in. Um no, I'm um I'm an observer. I may uh-huh. I may dabble uh-huh. here and there. I will for disclosure purposes state that I do own two elementals, one that I got oh, for wow. free okay. uh, <laughs> and one that I purchased below oh, wow. the mid price. Um, okay, very good. Uh the second thing is if I and I think I saw someone sort of hinting at this, but Azuki was maybe one of the only big of the large cap NFT projects not to do a fundraise. So maybe this is like they needed cash and all the other. Oh, they were trying to do a fundraise. They were trying to do a fundraise. They were they were going oh. out to market alongside at the same time. Yuga I don't remember, but did they did get they it? You? Did they close? I think they okay. did. Um, but also, I don't think they needed the money. Like. I think you know they were making a bunch of money on royalties and even primary mints last year. So I, I feel like it's, it's like NFTs, they're all trying to figure out their business model and how this whole thing works and looks sustainable. Like, do you try to turn this into a media business or like a gaming business or is this just a pure art play and you try to make money on, on royalties or you sell plushies, I guess, if you're if you're penguins. Um, but I feel like the the. The, the trick here, like the really the, the grail is like being able to do continue, continuous new primary issuance, like being able to sell $40 million worth of JPEGs is like fucking crazy. Um, and in theory, you know, depending on the market or more true historically, you're also getting some residuals and some secondaries, uh, uh, you know, royalties on uh, a secondary sales as well. Um, and so it's all kind of a question of like, well, how can I keep my community going like by throwing events or doing some giveaways or you know, doing doing something to sort of allow you to do new primary issuance and like everything is, is almost sort of a game around around that versus uh, uh, any of these other things, in my opinion. I agree. I mean, the most concerning thing is that, you know, the standard playbook for an NFT project, like regardless of if it's like media or whatever, is make more NFTs. Like that seems to be like the go-to instinct for almost every single project that's successful. And you know, there's various degrees of success and credibility in that approach, but almost every project's instinct is like, make more NFTs. You know, it's almost like, you know, there was projects very early on that were like, oh, what do we do next? We'll make another token. And like, there's projects with multiple tokens. Like, I feel like the instinct is just make more NFTs. And I think that's the wrong instinct. I think like to succeed, you know, project would be better off instead of making more NFTs and making a more complex ecosystem and blah, 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 you know, figuring out things that you could do for the existing NFTs, not just make more NFTs. I, I know this uh, the show gives a disclaimer about not providing any investment advice, but I would love to know what your thesis was for buying one, because <laughs> I don't understand, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's well, very so, Robert, what were you expecting them to look like when you were buying the elementals? I mean, honestly, I was expecting them to look like something 
different from Azuki's. Better than Beans. I don't know if anyone out there is an NFT collector. They launched a collection, you know, at some point called Beans. And the Beans, I think, are the most ridiculous NFTs ever made by like a blue chip-ish collection. Yeah, they're not very cool. It's like very hard to imagine somebody making a bean as their PFP. No, I personally think that mutants are extremely uncool. Like Bored Ape was you know, awesome. And they made mutants and they're like, obviously like very aesthetically unpleasing. They're like not cool. They're kind of offensive. Beans were kind of like the mutants of Azuki. They were like silly looking and kind of stupid. And why would you really want beans? Like, it was like almost like a joke that they were playing on their own collectors. Like, ah, you're going to want beans. Right. And like the beans were these like little, like silly things. And Okay, it was a massive divergence from the original collection. So I just assumed incorrectly, I think everyone on Twitter assumed incorrectly, that by releasing a third collection, the third collection would not be Azuki's, it would not be Beans, it would be like some other thing in the universe, um, instead of just being more Azuki's. I I just, I really struggle, one, that they didn't understand that, like if you are trying to maintain the exclusivity of your brand that you don't just make more of the same thing, right? Like if Rolex decides all of a sudden, like, Hey, we're going to create a hundred thousand of these this year just for the hell of it, because you know, whatever, we need some revenue. Um, that is such a bad decision. Although it's kind of obviously going to make money right now. Um, it basically torpedoes your business. It's hard to imagine that they didn't understand that. Um, and I guess the other, the other side of it is, uh, it, it it does seem like a bit of a failure of imagination that they're just like they're just more anime characters that are also in profile looking to the left, you know. Like there there d- doesn't really seem to be that much new. Like you mentioned, there's like there's a few other uh, animals. There's like raccoons or cats or something. But there's a few that, animals. Like, yeah, most of them just look like ordinary. I would not know those were not part of the original collection if you had not raised it to me that oh no these are elementals these are different. I can't I can't believe this is turning into an NFT podcast i feel like we have to be that nft podcast now now that nfts are not cool anymore i agree we have to embrace the least cool thing at all times that's right that's right but but what was so notable about this collection was that people were talking about how this is the revival of nft primary sales because this is the largest nft primary sale in like six to seven months when nft volumes have collapsed and volumes are super low and this feels like a dagger in the heart of nft collectors i'm just like why would you ever buy another mint you you fool you missed out on the uh, Lady Maker of Fumo mint, um, which is another notable did I? Prim- primary uh, primary okay. issuance. How much did that raise? I don't know an aggregate, but they're going for like forty k now. Um, but it's it's like a it's it's very different. They're they're like plush animal uh, or uh, 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 yeah stuffed oh, animals. You got to pull, pull one. All right, all right, Okay, let me let me describe. Can't, can't do an NFT show without you showing us what you're <laughs> showing us the JPEG. Yeah, look at that. Well, wait, wait, what? Anyway, they're they're, they're redeemable for, wait, this for is not a, even an actual plush. Oh, 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 I see. So it's yeah. really like a collector's item. Correct, correct. And they, they sold on a bonding curve, so... Um, so it's, it's Unisox style. It's Unisox yes. for Milady plush yeah, toys. Yeah, yeah, I see. Okay, got it. Do you own one, Tom? I did not. I do not. I missed the mint and uh, too far up the bonding curve now. You're no longer as cool as I thought you were. Sorry. Um, wait, wait, wait. Can I ask a, a, a more opinionated question? I was watching some um, documentary on Michael Milken the other day because, you know, I just forgot. I forgot he got pardoned or something recently, which, which I thought happened a long time ago. 
So I was just like, oh, let me go revisit some financial history. So the real question to me is, who's the milking of NFTs to you? I have my answer, but I wanna, I'm want i curious what everyone else's answer is. My, hold on. Before we get there, my first question is, like, is this what, like a Friday night with a girl, is this what you <laughs> like, watch a documentary about the history of, of like financial you know, engineering? So, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. Okay. Got it. Cool. Sorry, go, Robert, go ahead. So I was going to ask Tarun, since I've never thought about who the Michael Milken of NFTs is. Tarun, who is Machi? Ah, Machi Big Brother is uh, is is uh, in some ways has a very similar style, uh, aesthetic in terms of the types of equivalent junk bonds, I guess, that exist in NFT land. It, it's neither a compliment or an insult. It's sort of like a, a liminal third thing. <laughs> yeah, like, like how would you describe the the milkiness? You know, if you were to distill I, it I down. I think it's just that like no, like no one else ever sells a ton of things and then immediately goes and takes out loans on the same thing and takes leverage and buys them back. It's like it just like reminds me of the uh, Ivan Boski and and Milken like back and forth, where like Boski would like manipulate some price and then Milken would like sell things into that price manipulation and like you know it's like kind of amazing you can people seem to be doing that directly with you know and so that, that I, I maybe maybe that's too niche of an answer but you know i don't know enough nft traders i just know him because he's the most famous one i gotta say i am so outside of every aspect of this conversation <laughs> I I'm I'm going to vote that we end the NFT section for the show, but we're going to bring this back. Uh, I think. Hey, 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 you know what? Audience, now that NFTs audience, are not cool anymore, we should open uh, every any, show. Anyone has yeah. their own notion of who the Milken is? Please t- tweet at me. I'm curious. <laughs> yeah, tweet at <laughs> Tarun. Please tweet at Tarun uh, for your Milken of NFTs. Okay, um, let's. So moving on to more traditional finance, Prime Trust. Very much in the spirit of the times, there's another big failure slash, you know, spontaneous combustion in the crypto realm, which is this custodian called Prime Trust. So I knew of Prime Trust. I never really knew that much about it. I knew it was kind of out there somewhere in the world. So last week, the story was that they were going to get acquired by Bitco. They were in some kind of distress. It was very unclear exactly what was going on, but there were some rumors that things were bad in a bad state over at Prime Trust. Um, Prime Trust, to be clear, is a fairly small custodian. I think the three biggest custodians in crypto are probably uh, Coinbase, BitGo, and Anchorage. Um, so Prime, Prime Trust, a much smaller player than any of those. Obviously, there's also Fidelity and NASDAQ and all these other folks who are launching custodians, but Prime Trust was always there. So BitGo was going to acquire them, and they sort of pulled the Binance a little bit. Of They said, oh, we're you know interested in acquiring. We sent them an LOI. They kicked the tires, and they said, oh, my God, never mind. We're not acquiring these guys. Um, and that caused anybody who had money at Prime Trust to be very sad. Uh, now, I'm not totally clear who has money at Prime Trust because everybody seems to claim they don't. So I think um, it, was, it was rumored that uh, TrueUSD had money at Prime Trust, but then they've disclaimed having any money at Prime Trust, except now they've said they, they have $26,000 at Prime Trust, which is basically nothing. So just today, the Nevada financial regulator basically said that Prime Trust should be put into custodianship. And it's now reported exactly what went wrong at Prime Trust. So we have a window into how this custodian ended up collapsing. Uh, basically, they ended up at one point, so initially they had their own crypto wallets that they were managing on behalf of customers. Um, they ended up moving over to Fireblocks and having Fireblocks manage all their wallets. Except they had this concept of legacy wallets, which were basically their old wallet system, I guess. And for some reason, you know, uh, Fireblocks didn't have certain flexibility they wanted. And so they were creating throughout 2022 some of these old legacy wallets using their old system. But it turned out these legacy wallets were not being 
uh, persisted or something. And so they essentially were creating these wallets on their own interfaces, but they did not actually have the private keys to these wallets. And so they were telling people, ah, yes, we created a new wallet for you and your Bitcoin is over here, according to our internal ledger, but they did not have any of the crypto. And so when they realized this, they were like, oh shit, uh, we don't have the money that we keep telling our customers we have. Let's go use our cash deposits, which are being given to us by uh, customers who are depositing fiat in their custodian, uh, and let's use that to buy the crypto that we don't have uh, to give people withdrawals and kind of keep the keep the party going. So this looks like just a total complete circus. So they're they're down. Um, so their their liabilities they have about um, eighty five million dollars in crypto liabilities and about seventy million dollars in. Uh, or, uh, sorry, maybe I'm getting this money wrong. What's the cash liabilities? The other way around. It's $85 million in cash liabilities and like $69 mil in crypto liabilities. But the crypto is almost one-to-one and it's almost all Audius tokens, um, audio. Um, the rest is like some, you know, some Bitcoin and stuff like that. But yeah, they only have $3 mil in cash and uh, you know, so they're like $82 mil short. And so, yeah, it's like where did the money go? Maybe it was all lost in sort of trying to buy back the crypto that they lost. But also, <laughs> I mean, it, they're custodians, so they should have insurance. Jeez. So like the whole, whole thing seems very uh, goofy to me. I would be amazed if insurance pays out for something this retar- like this stupid. <laughs> I mean, like I, I, I cannot imagine how an insurance doesn't be like, yeah, sure, that seems like that falls within the bounds of your insurance policy. I, um, I mean, did it actually? This is a good question though, because I thought insurance was actually still hard to get for a lot of custodians. I'm sure, I'm sure. So I'm sure also their deposits are like, you know, they, they have like maybe they just like went way over their cap. And they they're not now not covered because they went over their their total cap. I mean, I also think they don't cover fraud, right? This is fraud, basically, right? They are they are. But it wasn't fraud when they just the... lost it. That was like business practice insurance. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but like when they when they when they fucked up the key management themselves, that wasn't fraud. That was like incompetence. But like. That was an accident. That was Theoretically, that, was, that, that was could be covered. Right? That could, if, if you then, then if you, at the moment, at the moment you realize it, you tell your customers and you're like, "Yo, we don't have the money. We, we don't have your crypto. Wallets. Yeah, we threw your we threw your crypto in the trash can, uh, but we'll buy some like we'll buy some for you." Um, the, the, that at that moment, uh, yes, that that could have been the fraud claim could not could have been averted at that point. Um, but when you keep the show running, when you realize and you start buying crypto with your cash that belongs to customers because it's a custodian, right? This is not their money. This is not like an exchange where these, uh, you know, it's all basically an omnibus account and, you know, who knows really what the bankruptcy rules are. For a custodian, the rules are very simple. It, for a custodian, it is not your money. It is the client's money, period, full stop. So uh, this kind of thing is, is, you know, taking their money and using it to buy crypto is theft. It, yeah, it's trading your customer's assets without their awareness of it to try to make it all back. I mean, that's just crazy. I, well, to be to be fair, also, that, like under what theory be, of making fair, it all back? Fair, you know, all of the 2022 stuff was that. So. Yeah, to be clear, so like at least FTX, there was like some theory of how you made the money back, right? FTX at least was like, oh, I'm gonna like go long my shit coins and like I'm gonna trade it. I'm gonna do these brilliant yield farming techniques. With these guys, I'm like, why would you? Why would you do this? Why would you not? Why would you think like this isn't going to immediately blow up in your face when you just are, have three million in cash versus eighty-five million in liabilities? Now, to be clear, these are all relatively small numbers in absolute terms. This is a small custodian, so we can kind of point and say, "Ha, these guys are idiots." And 
audio, so their crypto liabilities, you know, the 70 million in crypto liability, obviously a lot of it's already been drained because people heard all the instability and so they were pulling their money out. So this might be a pittance compared to what they what they previously were custody. I don't know. But the the crypto tokens, um, as as Tom mentioned, 61.5 million out of the 69 million in liabilities are Audius tokens. It's like something like 30% of the Audius supply, which means that the non Audius crypto is like eight million dollars of like Bitcoin and Ether or something. So this is like a very this is very small amounts of money that these guys were holding. But on also, to. I think the true USD thing was kind of a little bit weird, also, right? Because true USD is one of the they were kept a large portion of the true USD supply at Prime Trust. So yeah, I don't know what's happening with true USD because like I think you know some of these rumors around insolvency came out like a week ago, and then there was a big you know true USD short. But then Binance is also like incentivizing true USD and like not charging fees on the pair. So I, I like don't know what is actually happening. It wasn't all at Prime Trust. So right. I think I think that's basically right, what, the, what people are basically. Yeah, they, I think they claimed they took their money out at some point, quite a bit, quite a bit ago, before even any of this recent instability. They <laughs> took their money out. Then they said after Prime Trust went under that they had twenty six thousand dollars at Prime Trust, which is again like a rounding error for for uh, true USD. So. Yeah, all in all, um, kind of a clown show. So now the uh, yeah Nevada regulator is saying, okay, let's put this thing under receivership and shut it down. Like, why is this still operating? I don't know. But, you know, again, th- this is such a small custodian uh, in absolute terms. Like, this is probably, you know, like the big custodians are probably 100 times sm- uh, bigger than these guys, uh, at least at this point. I don't know what it, what they were at their at their peak. But um, just goes to show the importance of, of diligence. And... Um, you know, and, and also the important thing of just knowing what your, uh, knowing the the competence of your business leaders. This is one of the things people don't give enough credit to for Coinbase. Coinbase has been around for how, how long has it been? Like eight years, nine years since Coinbase inception, and they've never gotten hacked, and that is incredible, an absolutely incredible record of custodying that amount of Bitcoin, being a honeypot for that many years, and never getting hacked. Like, and, and people don't, I, I've, that is one thing I feel like people do not give enough credit to Coinbase for is just having absolute world-class OPSEC and robustness in the way they do things. That's part of the reason why they're so trusted by the industry. Agreed. But the bigger issue here beyond not getting hacked, because in essence, they got hacked. I mean, it's, they didn't get hacked. They lost the assets. But like, there's the assets go into the black hole and then there's the cover-up which is the consequence of it, right? Like if Coinbase somehow had assets go into a black hole, which it always could, right? Like there's no guarantee that any custodian can keep all the assets completely safe at all times. If the assets go into the black hole, you know, you're basically saying you would trust them not to cover it up and lie about it and fraud it. And so the real problem here that I see with Prime Trust is not, it's hard to safeguard assets because it's extraordinarily hard to safeguard assets, right? Even as a custodian, it's how they handled it, which is like the truly like disappointing thing. Like it's so hard to safeguard assets. It's hard for individuals. It's hard for businesses. It's hard for custodians whose job it is. Like it's just hard, right? It's hard for exchanges. How many exchanges have lost assets? Mount Gox lost it, you know, lost assets, right? Like Quadriga probably lost assets. You know, it's like there's so many instances of people losing crypto assets because keeping them safe is extraordinarily complicated. And from there, it separates into the good guys who own up to it and the bad guys who cover it up and dig themselves deeper 
trying to bake it all back somehow. Well, I, I agree with you. Obviously, the thing that needs to be condemned is that they were hiding it and covering it up and trying to run this kind of Ponzi-like structure. Like This is almost literally a Ponzi scheme where they're taking deposits from new people and using it to pay out folks who had their crypto uh, black holes. The thing, though, that like the, the core root of it is that these guys had no business custodying crypto if they could not figure out how to make sure that when you send the money, that there's a private key associated with the address receiving it. But by the like, way, this has happened once before, also. Not even the one on one. The I don't know if you remember, there was this like stake hound thing, which was like an early ETH staker, right? Which also got locked out of their fireblocks assets. BLS key shares are much harder than That's normal right. private key. But if you're going to be doing them, then know what a BLS, know how the fuck a pairing works. I do not. I, there's no way this has anything to do with BLS no, no, no. But you have to understand like, how to maintain them. Make sure you understand which share to keep. Which one yes. to dispose of? Which one is trusted setup? Like, if you fucking can't understand what a pairing is, like, you should not be managing key money using it. Yeah, no, that's right. And look, I mean, ultimately, they they kind of made the right choice in moving to Fireblocks and saying, okay, we're going to outsource the technology part of the custody to Fireblocks, which is wow, great move. But then they second guess themselves and were like, oh wait, no, we need this other feature. Who knows what it was? And that caused them to just completely screw over all their customers and, and themselves now. So, well, anyway. My takeaway from this is I always go back to first principles. This is, yet again, one of the reasons why DeFi has the long-term advantage because if a DeFi protocol somehow black hold assets, everybody would know right away. And there would be no ability to cover it up. There would be no fraud next steps. There's radical transparency, and this would not happen with a smart contract. That is true. Um, but okay, there's another conversation to be had here about self-custody, right? And that custody is hard. That's part of the reason why people want to outsource their custody to Fireblocks or to Coinbase or to whatever. It's extremely hard. That's why I gave all my crypto to Tarun and he keeps the private key safe. <laughs> it's still safe, right, Tarun? You're not supposed to ever answer that. No. Yeah, that's... That's the that's the beauty of trusted third parties. They solve all. No, the I, I mean, I I, I do think I, uh, I I I hope that stuff like this forces uh, people who are aiming to be custodians to not to actually understand how cryptography works. <laughs> I feel like the problem is there are a lot of people who are like, oh, this is going to be just like you know running a, a random software company, or like, oh, this is going to be running like you know like a trading desk. I don't have to think that hard about. The cryptography stuff like isn't it just like call this library and hit encrypt and decrypt and like it works and i don't have to think about like how what what other fucking files it's generating how how i generate the entropy dot 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 and then like you know i think there's a lot of people who are very over eager and think they already know that stuff without realizing they don't which i think was also kind of true in yeah. the ftx case too in some ways it's i feel like it's been a while since we've actually had like a large amount of crypto get black hold, like the parity wallet stuff was kind of like the, the last thing that comes to mind. But beyond that, like it's usually almost always hacks, right? Somebody's stealing it, but like very rarely does it, it actually get stuck somewhere because someone lost access or lost the private key or something. Wasn't there um winter mute? Didn't they do something? Oh, with the multi-sig? Yeah. Uh, was that, that was black hold or was that hack? No, that was someone else was able to get their address and take the money. Yeah, okay, they like right. deployed uh, the Gnosis Safe to Optimism to the address that they should right. have deployed to, and on the main on mainnet, and so yeah, okay. sneaky. Okay. All right, all right. Anyway, 
But but wait wait, wait. it was but the thing to to Robert's point earlier that Wintermute thing was observed almost immediately by tons of people, right? Like it was not like you found True. out a year later. I, this Prime Trust thing has been going on for a while, right? It wasn't like two weeks ago they started doing this. Yeah, this was this was yeah, last year. Exactly, this was exactly. throughout 2022 that they were doing this. Listen, every Ponzi scheme starts with someone like losing a little money and being like, "Oh, I'll make it back before anyone finds out." That's like oh. Bernie Madoff. That's you, like you, every. That's like half the, the Ponzi schemes. The most hilarious history. thing to me was like the in 2021. When, when people were overly bullion, anytime there'd be a tiny market downturn, people would say the make it back in one trade meme. And like, I, I sort of think they really, did, like, I thought it was a joke. And then now I've come to realize two years later that all these people took that shit seriously. <laughs> a lot of people did not yeah, get the joke. I thought That's it was right. a joke. That's I like, right. can't believe. <laughs> yeah. No, it, but here's, here's the other thing too, to, to ruin your earlier point about like custodians should be scared of this industry because it's hard and getting one little thing wrong can mean basically the end of your business or loss of massive amounts of customer funds. Um, it's one of the reasons why, you know, when we started on the investing side, um, basically like we, you know, looking at custodians, cause there were of course a lot of custodians back in the day that you could uh, conceivably custody your digital asset side. And now there are even more. Um, the number one thing is just how strong is your tech team? Like how strong is your paranoia? How strong is your OPSEC? And, um, that's one of the things that, uh, you know, despite the fact that there are all these, you know, great stalwart financial firms that are now getting into crypto custody, for us, one of the reasons why we default to the Coinbase's and the Anchorage's of the world is that they've been doing this for so long and they take it so seriously. Like for them, it is absolute, you know, um, of prime importance to never underestimate the task that's in front of you, which is keeping your crypto safe, not messing it up yourself and not getting hacked. And it, it's it's so easy. You get it wrong once. This is also why I'm quite negative on some of the traditional finance custodians doing it themselves. I think they're going to end up just buying someone because they like are not going to be able to. They, they all seem so overly optimistic of like, oh, we're just going to hire like five people and do it. And I'm always like, good luck. Uh, but the one thing that's funny about it is none of this stuff is very static, right? Like if you look at the the choice of like public keys, even through the Ethereum merge like understanding like the changes to the curves, whether you should be expecting the same public key or not, whether you should be expecting like the the signatures to look the same. All of that stuff in this space changes much faster. You know, like in web, in web 2 land and definitely in finance land, everyone always tells you the following added, which is like never roll your own cryptography, never make your own cryptography, like just use some some other library. And cryptocurrency is the only space where actually every fucking chain is writing its own new thing because they were actually implementing some new cryptography that had never been used before. And if you, the user, aren't cognizant of that in and of itself when you're doing it, you're just going to completely fuck up. And like, I think like somehow TradFi people have this like, we already know this, we're so smart attitude towards this. And I don't think they appreciate like the nuances in, in these systems from a math standpoint from a cs standpoint from a engineering standpoint there's like so many layers to it and it's not just like press encrypt and decrypt in the library which i don't know sorry for my little bully pulpit but i <laughs> tom you were gonna add something yeah i was gonna say i i think obviously having a great tech team is 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 important and you know uh all is equal better than than not but i think 
you know, independent of that, I would actually much rather take a team with like an insurance policy from Lloyd's um, over a team that's a, <laughs> as a great tech team, but no insurance any day. Um, and so I think there is something to just like falling back and having some sort of sort of recourse because uh, uh, it is sort of the um, yeah, nobody uh, card. insuring nobody's insuring custodians for like the entire assets. No, not yet. Probably not even for like 20 years, not until hmm. like the science of keeping the assets there is like. But this gets to my point of like, I don't think we've, this industry is not like stationary cryptography, right? Like every single time there's like some new signature scheme, there's some new encryption scheme. And like, that's most of the advantage, that's most of the advances in this space that are not found anywhere else is that. So because of that, it's like, I don't think we're anywhere near some crystallization point, except for Bitcoin keys. Like Bitcoin basically is not changing. Like it's it's plausible that if you have you know a mega player like a Fidelity, that they could potentially self-insure and basically say like, look, if you want an insurance policy, you pay extra, and we'll use the rest of our balance sheet to insure your deposit. That seems plausible to me, and maybe that is a structural advantage that somebody like Fidelity could could lord over a Coinbase or an Anchorage or a, a Bitgo. But right now, um, I mean, for those for those of you who are not in the industry and, and don't realize this, it is almost impossible to get insurance in crypto. Like underwriters just do not know how to underwrite crypto. They don't know what the risks are. There's too little history. The blowups are big and dramatic, but then like a lot of things are just fine for a very long time. It's very difficult to underwrite this space. So, you know, anybody, ask anybody who's in crypto trying to get insurance, mostly you're just gonna get the door slammed in your face. Or you're gonna get crazy, crazy premiums, which for a startup, you know, just don't make sense, right? You can't be paying, you know, half your runway in insurance premiums. It, it doesn't make any sense. So that will someday change. I don't know if it's 10 years, five years, 20 years. I hope it's not. The longer side of that, but um, the 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 tradfi players who are very big and have different uh, you know diversified businesses, I could see them gaining an edge there in basically saying, "Look, we're going to self-insure." But yeah, Lloyd's is not going to be insuring a custodian anytime soon. So, okay, um, let's move on. So, I we, we it was a little light on news this week, so we thought we'd uh, check in with a little bit of a different angle and do kind of a broader examination of the state of crypto. We want to talk about layer twos because there's a lot of Conversation going on right now about Layer 2 is one of the most dynamic areas within the you know, broader crypto smart contracts ecosystem. So we wanted to talk a little bit about the state of the market and some of the interesting things that are going on in the Layer 2 world. So I'll start with a little bit of exposition, and then we'll just kind of kick off a broader discussion. So L2s, for those of you who are not aware of what an L2 is, an L2 is short for Layer 2. A Layer 2 is basically anything that roots its trust in the Layer 1, but creates sort of another layer of blockchain block space that you can interact on that's not directly on the Layer 1 itself. So the way that I like to analogize it is that a Layer 2 is kind of like a skyscraper that creates more real estate on top of the underlying city. So um, in in the case of Layer 2s, mostly today we're talking about roll-ups, although I was, lightning on Bitcoin is growing quite a bit, actually. There's a lot of news about that, but let's mostly focus on roll-ups. Um, so roll-ups, there are today, um, call it four main players. Uh, there's, there's, there's more now, but we'll, we'll say the, the big ones today are, uh, there's uh, Arbitrum, which is the leader. It's got most TVL. I think they've got like 5 billion plus. They've got a lot of daily actives. Um, so Arbitrum, huge player. Uh, then there's uh, Optimism. Both of those are optimistic roll-ups. And then we've got ZK Sync, which is kind of new, newly on the rise or growing very quickly, uh, which is a ZK roll-up. And then there's Starkware. Uh, which is not EVM compatible, unlike the other three. They have their own, you know, totally separate language and ecosystem. Um, so there's there's a few things that are going on right now, and I'll, I'll have the first topic of discussion be about layer threes. 
So layer threes have kind of become this meme that's become increasingly popular. Everyone's announcing their new layer three. Arbitrum has orbit chains. ZK Sync has hyper chains. StarkX, uh, they have validiums, which they've been kind of advertising for a while. And there are some of them obviously already out there. Um, and then uh, Optimism, they have, uh, uh, what, are they, what, are they, what does Optimism call their layer threes? Is it hyper chains as well? Uh, super chain. Super chain, super chain, super chain. Sorry, I keep, I forget the prefixes. No, no, no. But, but the reason, the reason that you might, uh, is that one of the newest super chain ent- entities, uh, used to call everything they built hyperstructures. So, you know, <laughs> Wait, Zora. Oh, yeah. Zora. Okay, hy- yeah, yeah. So Zora recently announced that they're launching their own OP stack, which is a fork of optimism. Um, and, uh, they're, they're building a super chain. On optimism. So in layer three, simply put, my understanding, Tarun, correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding of a, a layer three is that basically it's a layer two on top of the layer two. So you build a skyscraper on top of the skyscraper, but there's a fast exit so that basically if you want to go from the super mega skyscraper on top of the other skyscraper all the way down to ground floor, you can take one elevator and go all the way down. Right? Is that <laughs> the skyscraper correct? analogy, I feel like, doesn't quite recurse as well. <laughs> I, I, I but, thought it actually recurs quite like beautifully. How many, though, but... how many times have you seen someone build a skyscraper on a skyscraper? Other than like that failed hotel uh, in North the Middle Korea. East? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, go to the Middle East, you're going to see a lot of uh, very interesting structures. Um, so, yes. Uh, so that, that's basically layer three. Layer three is becoming more popular. And the OP stack has become kind of a meme at this point, is that lots and lots of people are now building on the OP stack. Uh, one of our portfolio companies called Dara, which is like a roll-up as a service company, facilitates people launching their own uh, roll-ups. Base, of course, is an OP stack roll-up. Zora is OP stack roll-up. I guess these are all going to be hyper-chain, or sorry, super chains now. What do you guys think of this layer three concept and um, the the proliferation of the OP stack? You guys are, I, I should also caveat, you guys are investors in Optimus, yes. I believe. Dragonfly is not. Um, I would say, you know, in the same way that, you know, in the 1999 uh, tech bubble, Webvan was a good idea, but like wrong timing, wrong execution. Arguably, like all of this stuff actually existed in 2017 under the, the name of Plasma. And like a lot of the exit games and stuff are the same, but like people didn't understand how to implement these things and where the interfaces were and like which things were necessary components in the same way, hopefully the thesis is that cell phones were necessary for these types of businesses that didn't work in 1999 when no one had cell phone. And now Ethereum is sufficiently strong to be this base piece, whereas it was not development wise. That Ethereum was sufficiently strong. Why? Why Ethereum? Well, because I mean, you a to use as a DA layer to to use it as the final exit layer of like your assets are really stored there. You need to like build all these contracts for doing that. It was very hard to do that in 2017, bordering on impossible. And I think a bunch of different other things in in Ethereum ecosystem, developer ecosystem wise, have made but made it a lot easier. Whereas like in 2017, you could like see the idea, but like the idea of I- implementing it was impossible, which is why you saw like the Amisa goes over the world kind of try and fail and stuff like that, right? There were so many people yeah, who tried. I, mean, I would characterize it differently. I would characterize it differently. So I, I think in 2017, um, so the, this Plasma, for, for those of you who don't know, pl- for those of you who came in in the last three years, you probably never even heard this term. So Plasma was kind of the the predecessor of all the layer twos that have taken place, you know, the optimistic rollups and all the, all the, all the rollup stuff. Uh, R- Plasma was basically a very primitive version of a rollup. 
um, that had a lot of problems around data availability. Basically, they didn't, they didn't really have an answer for data availability, uh, and they didn't have good solutions for general computation. So a lot of the initial ideas around plasmas were that you could transfer UTXOs on plasmas, and then you, you know the exits were a gigantic nightmare. But as a user, you had to track your own UTXO and then manually exit it. And it was a whole, it was a whole thing that was just very unrealistic for users to be able to manage all this. So Omisa Go was one example. There was Loom. If you remember, I think Georgios used to be uh, at Loom, and that's how he first became, you know, Mr. Georgios. Mr. Lair too is from all his work there. Um, so there were some folks that were really trying to launch these plasmas, but they weren't really working. And I think the biggest thing that was holding plasmas back is that there wasn't really a good answer for general uh, computation. So you you couldn't do a Turing complete or do EVM, right? And that, that's ultimately what we've seen is now massive, massive product market fit is EVM. If you cannot do EVM, you're just not going to get use. Right, people do not want to build. I mean, there are there are obviously some you know kind of uh, uh, application specific blockchains like you know DYDX and so on that 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 do have some traction. But for the most part, the vast majority of block space is EVM block space. That's what most people care about. Majority of used block space. There's a lot of not used, used blocks. blocks. There's okay, a lot sorry. of empty blocks <laughs> yeah. in some places. That's, yeah, that's true. Yes, yeah. so the majority of demand for block space is for EVM block space. So I think the the the. It, so all of this, I think, I think the reason why this happened, one, was that we needed to actually develop the ideas behind rollups, which took a while. There were a lot of false starts. So like Optimism, they started with uh, the OVM, which was like a kind of different, like a shim between EVM and like their own internal representation or whatever. And then they abandoned that. They kind of scrapped the whole thing and then just did what Arbitrum was doing with the uh, direct EVM compatibility. So long story short has been just be EVM compatible. That's That's number one rule. And then the second thing also is that Optimism is still not really done, right? Like the OP stack doesn't have fraud proofs. Um, and almost all the rollups are still, you know, highly guarded, right? Like they're protected by multisigs. You know, the upgrades, upgrade process right now is still not being done through decentralized governance. Arbitrum does have fraud proofs, but the fraud proofs are, they are uh, whitelisted. So only certain parties can actually submit the fraud proofs. So I th the, the reality is that, you know, for OP stack in particular, you know, for base, Zora, whatever, these things are not even really rollups because there's no, there's no fraud proofs, right? So there's no, there, you, you are not getting the guarantees from Ethereum without any fraud proofs. Right now, it's just basically sidechain that spits out data availability on some other layer. Uh, so I, the, the point I'm making is that I think it really is about R&D. I don't think it's about Ethereum. No, 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 but, but, but they were, they were sort of coupled, right? Like Ethereum's roadmap at that time with trying to, to do what, like sort of full sharding, like I guess some people like Nier did, right? Like was just very different in the sense like some of the design decisions being made were made for that use case whereas like right now it's like very clear okay we need to like make storage blobs cheaper we need to like do all this stuff to make rollups better right but a lot of that just came i agree it's r&d but the r&d actually was initially all at the base layer and getting and the then, then that but how, but what has ethereum even done that facilitated rollups in the last Three years. I mean, making developer like, tools exactly so you can do the, the verification contracts. Like, do, there's like lots of little tiny things that are annoying that, like, I would say that, like, 2018, 2019, you could not implement, right? 2019, 2018, you could implement USWAP, you could implement Compound, took a lot of work. You had contract limit sizes, you couldn't, like, you had to do all this stuff. And the, the logic for a lot of the L2 stuff is actually quite complicated, uh, you know, com comparatively. Uh, I, I'm just saying, like, I, I, I think that there was quite a bit of Ethereum core development needed and a focus not on sharding out the base protocol and a focus on this kind of like 
almost like distributed sort of form of that. Um, now, you know, yeah, again, I agree with you that it remains to be seen that if, if we get like, how do you deal with fraud proofs? How do you deal with data availability? And so, yeah, data availability um, for, I guess, the the listeners who don't understand, I know we kind of tossed that term around like three times, is the idea that the base chain where your assets are on is the one that's really like providing the data for uh, these other chains. So these other, you, you're posting the data both to the base layer and to the other chain, such that if you wanted to exit or there was some type of fraud, which is what a fraud proof or fault proof uh, kind of shows you, then that way the layer one can say, okay, well, you can exit. You can take your assets out. Like something wasn't working there. And like, so your, your assets are still tethered to the main initial chain. A lot of the earlier designs to, to Seab's earlier point kind of were focused just on doing payments, right? Like Bitcoin's Lightning Network is just payments um, and doesn't really have contract functionality or, you know, putting conditions or covenants on things. But, you know, I think the, the idea of like having tightly coupled shards that were each an application versus this kind of you can add your own and you only have to, in, in the average case, you don't have to interact with the expensive layer one very often. It, 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 there was a lot of things that needed to go right to get to this point. But I, I think that the question to me is like, what's the level of interoperability between these chains? Because, you know, in Cosmos, you do technically already have the interoperability. You just have zero demand for block space, basically. And the question here is like, there seems to be some demand, like I guess base and Arbitrum obviously has some of the most highest amount organic demand. Optimism has a lot of demand from, from sort of incentivized demand. So the real question, I guess, is, you know, how much do these things need to talk to each other? And if there's 20 of them, like, are they really going to be all 20 users? It's still going to concentrate to the ones that have the most liquidity user apps. Well, I think it goes to the ones with the most liquidity and user apps and reason to be there. Why wouldn't it? Like, what else is going to... For sure. But but we kind of have this, like, boom right now, right? And people who are like, I'm going to build my own app chain, but now it's called, a, you know, X roll-up, like OP stack roll-up, Arbitron <laughs> roll-up, you know? Like. Yeah, I think that that is a lot of it, frankly, is people want their own chain. But, like, you know, normally if you're, like, rolling your own Cosmos chain, you can make an argument around, oh, well, here's all the reasons why this chain is going to be optimized or tailored to my specific use case or these validators are going to be perfect for my specific thing. I, I kind of struggle with that a little bit more with, with rollups. Like I don't even know how much customization we've seen amongst, you know, some of the uh, OP stack deployments um, that have come out so far. Like it, it just seems like there's less customizability. And so it's like, why this thing versus just doing it on sort of the main L2. So one, one other element of this that I think is interesting to talk about is Polygon. So Polygon, they kind of sit in this weird uh, no man's land where they're sort of, they're an L1, but they also have other products underneath the same product suite. So they've got ZKEVM, which is their, um, their ZKEVM, which was built by uh, Jordi, uh, Jordi Bailina. Um, and uh, they, they recently announced that they are transitioning, they're going to be transitioning the, the sort of Polygon mainnet, which is, you know, ostensibly a layer one, uh, into being a... Uh, uh, a ZK EVM Validium. So Validium uh, basically is a, uh, it's basically a roll-up, a ZK roll-up that has the data availability totally off-chain. Um, 
in some other place. So it's not, you know, the, the bridge is on Ethereum, but the data availability is somewhere else. So it's cheaper to run a Validium than to run a, a kind of full ZK rollup. And um, the interesting thing, I, so there was, uh, you know, Sandeep, the founder of, uh, of Polygon, was just complaining that people treat them like the ugly stepchild of the Ethereum community in that no matter what they do, the Ethereum community like always finds some way to like poke a hole in it or to tell them that they're not, you know, they're not, uh, they're not real. They're not really decentralized. They're not really layer two. They're not really whatever. Um, how do you guys, how do you guys see what Polygon is doing and how it fits into the layer two story? Because they're definitely, one thing is very, very clear is that they're not Ethereum cool kids. They're not the anointed. They're, you know, they're not blessed by Vitalik and all these other folks. Where, how do you, uh, how do you contextualize that into like the, everything that's happening in the blockchain world. I mean, I don't think you have to be anointed. I don't think you have to have <laughs> like some social proof. You just have to have a reason for something to exist, right? And I think it goes the other way where if there's a reason for something to exist, some roll-up, some app chain, some whatever, then later people will say, oh, it's here for a good reason. It's anointed or like blah, 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 blah. Like I would say to any builders out there, you know, screw what people on Twitter say, if it needs to exist, it should exist. Yes, that, that is, that is true to an extent, but like the rollups on Ethereum are unlike a lot of other technology races in that they're very, very political, it's particularly on Ethereum rollups are super political. And I think part of the reason why rollups are so political is that it is deeply tied with the long-term roadmap of ethereum right like you turn the sharding about to roll up around transition was a big deal exactly, yeah exactly exactly the original story was that ethereum was going to transition to a bunch of shards like a bunch of little baby ethereums that would all talk to each other that was the big vision of how to scale ethereum and then they gave that up because they basically said look doing much of rollups is going to be easier okay so and you know you you guys will be able to move much faster than we as ethereum can so let's just embrace the roll-up vision that instead of a thousand baby ethereums there's gonna be a thousand baby roll-ups on top of a thousand ethereums and we'll just be like the substrate on which all these skyscrapers will get built okay in that vision of the world it really matters it really matters who ethereum embraces as being like yes we will support you we will you know make the opcodes that you ask for cheaper we will you know, convene our blob storage around your particular ideas. We will tell people, like, there, there are a lot of things that are not so subtle about the way in which Ethereum is influencing the outcome of the roll-up wars. But, but, but the op codes that they roll out benefit everybody. You're really right? talking about two kind of separate things. The EIP process for making changes to Ethereum is extremely politically motivated, politically generated. But arguably... Arbitrum's organic kind of very natural success comes from the fact that they just like built the most reliable rollup first, right? Like uh, Arbitrum, totally, totally. Uh, optim which shows is also like which shows the chasm that they had to overcome, right? right? Like Optimus, they were so far ahead of but, Optimus. But my point is like technical, technical sophistication can like get you past these political. That that's kind of the beauty of crypto, right? Is like you built this thing that like was better for oracles. And so then the perps protocols are better. So then they can't brought there. And like, that was like completely unrelated right. to your politics. Right. That but, was completely but, but what you're acknowledging Tarun, what you're acknowledging when you say that is that optimism was the one that was preferred by the Ethereum. But I'm of, saying in you know, spite of that, it, it did, it didn't change the outcome. The outcome was like, you <laughs> built the best thing, right? Like whoever built the thing that found I mean, the okay. users. Imagine, imagine if the, imagine if the Ethereum foundation was like actually Arbitrum is better. 
and we love Arbitrum and we're going to like pose with them for photo ops. We're going to tell everybody that Arbitrum is the way that Ethereum is going to scale. And they and Vitalik mentioned Arbitrum in every single blog post. Our optimism would have no oxygen. They would not be able to breathe from how but, dominant but Arbitrum they, would be. If they, if they made some dominant. technical advance that was really good for applications that had users, like in the case of Arbitrum, making it having all these features such that perps were actually much more reliable there than the like perpetual futures uh, DeFi protocols were, were more robust than they were on optimism. Then, you know, if the opposite thing happened, I still think the same outcome happens because people who are the developers who are building these apps are just looking for particular properties, right? It's like, why do I choose AWS or GCP as my Amazon Web Services or Google Cloud for my for my uh, cloud hosting? It's like, oh, maybe they have some particular feature or like they have a particular type of GPU. So I, and, and like it's reliable and I can get it. And like, I'm always able to. True. What, what, what exactly is that difference between Arbitrum and Optimism? Well, I think the Optimism bedrock works. upgrade kind of fixes a lot of the things that people complained about. But like, you know, the block time reliability wasn't as good, like the latency the latency reliability, mm. the, the way the message passing to the end user was for, for MEV stuff was just better. Um, I think it was, you know, they, they kind of like the learning path of going from OVM to, to, to different things. So, so my point is like the, there's, a, there's a sense in which Arbitrum did really get a lot of these engineering decisions right at the time that there were these applications that really needed them. And had this amazing organic growth story, right? Like they, they really did have organic non-incentivized via tokens growth and so and and that built up their ecosystem so so i, I my point is i i think the roll-up wars are are there is some real politic no doubt right there's it, it certainly shows up but i i do think your technical capabilities are are the most important thing eventually right like if you find you make the technical capabilities that are exactly what the developers at that time are demanding it's it's just it's going to be hard to compete with that. Now, I think your point about Polygon is Polygon was sort of started as early and they were effectively their own L1 that happened to be an EVM, right? And then like now they're kind of backing into it. So it's just a different gestation story, right? Like they didn't, didn't start purely on the mothership. They kind of started with this thing that used a little bit of substrate and a little bit of cause, like, you know, like they have like their code base also doesn't look like we are purely in ETH, you know, like, and, and well, I forget what that law is. That's like how your code base looks reflects the communication pattern at your company. Oh, there's like, there's yeah, like yeah, a, yeah. Uh, you, you know, what I'm talking, yeah, and, and like, I, I feel like that's actually true in blockchains. That's true in rollups too, is like how your code base looks is a reflection of your contributors community and the applications that want to build on you. And you should strive for that to look like the thing you want, you know? And, and I think that that will be the, ultimate determined. Anyway, I'm done ranting. <laughs> Tom, you were going to say something? Well, I think Matic started out as like a sidechain, right? And so they've always been like close to the Ethereum ecosystem and they've been trying to figure out, I think, how, like it's, there was not an answer for years as to like how you actually go about building a real business and, and company like this. And the answer, you know, for a while was that we would just jerry-rig this thing and kind of make something that looks like what people want. And it's like, yeah, that's probably, if you, if you don't do that and you try to have some sort of, you know, purity test, you probably just die because it's straight up not functional or not even possible to do what you're trying to do. So it's like you're navigating this 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 weird balance of trying to find something that has immediate PMF, but also trying to build for this long-term 
path. It, it's it's not, um, I think, as, as simple as, uh, you know, just uh, uh, you know, building towards sort of some pure R&D vision and hope that, you know, it works several years down the yeah. line. PMF being product market fit. Um, so I, 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 I really like that point, Tom, and I totally agree with it, is that in a way, being able to just build tech that nobody wants and nobody uses and just like hang around and wait for the world to change is a very, is, is basically a privilege that can be afforded to you in an environment that's awash with capital. Polygon, you know, like, I mean, the one thing that I will give them a lot of credit for, they, they came from India, uh, obviously the entire team is Indian, and a lot of their usage is outside of the first world. That's where the kind of their stronghold is, is kind of non-first world users. And um, they, they, had to, they had to scrimp and scrape for everything that they got, you know? And I have a, a huge amount of respect for that. It doesn't appeal very much to the Ethereum intelligentsia, but because, you know, it's not this sort of pristine, like, wait, why didn't you, why didn't you start as a roll-up and immediately blah, 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 blah. And they're like, look, we, we try to build the things that people wanted. You guys are building the things that each other said that each other should want. And nobody was using any of your shit, you know, two, three years ago. Um, we were building the things that people actually wanted. People wanted block space. They wanted um, to have, uh, I don't know, whatever, all the stuff that, that Polygon has launched. I, I, they obviously have a, a large product suite. Um, and uh, you guys said you wanted Web2 kind of traditional companies and brands to partner and do stuff in Web3. Well, okay, we're doing that. That's what we're, exactly what we're doing. That, that uh, hustle is what I really respect about Polygon. Uh, but it, it is certainly true that they they don't have this um, kind of you know pristine uh, kind of evolutionary origin story the way that they were the way that so many people in the kind of Western technology world would very much prefer them to. So okay, last thing I want to talk about on the um, Tarun, you mentioned MEV with respect to uh, what was going on with with Optimism versus Arbitrum. Um, one of the one of the things we've been seeing a lot of, just as VCs, getting a lot of pitches about sequencers, shared sequencers. So, okay, what the hell is a shared sequencer? So, uh, let me see if I can come up with a. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm going to use I'm going to use a skyscraper analogy for this. So, uh, in in so when you're running a, a layer two, um, there is some entity that is basically deciding the ordering of all the transactions in the layer two, and they're kind of doing the work of processing stuff. They're kind of the CPU of the of that uh, mini blockchain. Um, you can sort of think of this as like the leasing office of the skyscraper, right? You need some somebody in there who's like kind of doing the work of allocating all the rooms or whatever. Um, and so a shared sequencer is this idea that you can have multiple skyscrapers that are controlled by the same leasing office. And the advantage of this, um, there, there, there are a few advantages of this, but one of, the, one of the nice advantages of this is that you can basically do a sort of do a deal, do like a, you know, a transfer, a cross-chain transaction, a bridge, um, or some kind of cross-roll-up uh, MEV, so basically say, I want to do this and that across these two blockchains. And if, if both of them cannot be done, I want to cancel the transaction outright. So you can get some like atomic guarantees across multiple blockchains uh, or multiple rollups. You can do that through one leasing office, right? You can be like, I want this room in this uh, skyscraper and this room in this skyscraper. But if I can't get both, I don't want either of them. Um, that can only be done if you have you know one party to negotiate with. So these are these sort of shared sequencers. These are becoming kind of a new hot thing uh, there's also decentralized sequencers, which is kind of the story for all these guys that not only are these sequencers going to be shared across multiple uh, rollups, but also they're going to be decentralized in some way. Today, they're all uh, pretty much centralized. Um, how do you guys think about decentralized sequencers? Is this an interesting thing to invest in? Do we think it's going to be big? Do we think that only you know small um, rollups are going to have shared sequencers, or is this going to be the new future? I'm sure, Tarun, you have very strong opinions. I can see you smiling. Um, I think the funny thing that we learned is like, a lot of companies we invested in last year 
started saying they were doing different things and then all of a sudden converged on, hey, we're all going to do shared sequencers, which I thought was like funny. If you, when you see like the market pivot into something, there's some sort of at least idea level demand for it. Um, I think it's just very hard to get right. Um, you know, your, your goal is to be as like lightweight as possible without just making another blockchain that's intermediating between all these chains. Um, but yeah, the, the idea, like the dream is that, you know, one of the most beautiful things in, in crypto and especially in DeFi that you don't really have in normal finance at all is this concept of a flash loan where you can borrow capital and you only re- your loan only exists if your activity or arbitrage or whatever your function is able to return profitably, then the loan happens. And it's sort of a way of like guaranteeing atomicity, uh, you know, guaranteeing execution in a particular order of, of a sequence of transactions. But it's also a way of doing sort of like risk-free lending because it really is risk-free, right? Like it only executes if it, if these things, uh, conditions, covenants work and are profitable. And obviously, as the blockchain ecosystem got much more complicated post-2020, people always want ways to do the same thing. They would like some guarantees of that form. And there's always sort of this inherent problem where like, if you have two machines that are independent, in, they don't quite have to respect one another. And you could kind of think of... Um, you could, you could, if you think of these chains as nations, um, the the idea of the bridges or bridges are like kind of like when you go to you go at the airport and they like check your passport and they're like, nope, we're denying you. There's sort of the sense of like you're you're moving between regions that are different. They have different rules, and you maybe in that new region your assets will have different kind of covenants or lack thereof added to. The goal of the shared sequencer is somehow to pick some subset of things that are free trade agreements. At least that's how I like to think of them. It's like guaranteeing atomicity over these two different regions is a little bit like NAFTA. It's like we agree that these two things. <laughs> and and I think. Okay. I, I like the leasing office better, but I'll take NAFTA. That, I just think the also, fair trade versus not fair. <laughs> that's a very Tarun-esque. Uh, fair trade to, versus yeah, okay. not fair trade is like, you know, like the bridges have to handle all possible things, sure. handle all the tariffs. Fair trade is like, yeah. whatever, we guarantee you this, this will always go across. And so I think like there's a sense in which that's sort of where it's hard. It, it does have the same, it has some of the same problems of like, how do you remunerate the shared sequencer for doing this action of making it feel like a fair trade zone? And how do you make it so that it's easy to verify on both sides? Um, but yeah, there's clearly a ton of interest in this. Um, I think there's also a lot of debate over uh, this. You know, I think people in you know the land where people don't want things to be asynchronous, like Solana, they sort of view the shared sequencer as like, well, aren't you just going back to what we're doing because you're like guaranteeing these ad- atomicity? guarantee is that we always guarantee because everyone's on the same chain and there's no separation of church and state. And uh, on the other hand, you have, you have people in Ethereum who are like, Hey, we're a bunch of OP stack rollups. We're likely sharing a lot of assets on Ethereum that are being used in our chains. Can we make some extra guarantees on both sides? Uh, And that's sort of this fair free trade agreement type of thing. So the the first thought that I have about shared sequencers is that so one it feels to me like I mean this it's interesting 
but it feels a little bit bike shedy. Like it feels like this is the, the amount of interest and attention and energy going into this problem um, feels a little bit over overweight to it's like actual importance to user experience of these things. Um, like the reality is that like optimism stack does not have fraud proofs, right? Like that seems like a really big problem. Um, and, but, but so much, so much brain power is being expended on how to create shared sequencers. It feels a little bit, um, like a kind of misdirection of just because it's intellectually interesting. Um, the other side of it, of course, is that like the, the, the problem with shared sequencers is also the kind of the noisy neighbor problem, which is that if you are an Arbitrum or you are, you know, kind of optimism mainnet, um, you're, you got a lot of shit going on. You're very full, right? You don't necessarily want to be a joint at the hip to, you know, 20 other rollups that are also going to be kind of sending their transactions to the same, uh, sequencer that's, you know, you know, you've got, um, uh, the, the 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 sort of the passport you know stamping office. Uh, if you have you know twenty security lines going to the same passport office, uh, it's just going to be more of a shit show, and like you're going to have latency problems, congestion problems, all that sort of stuff is just going to wear down on you. Um, and so the biggest rollups, I have to imagine, are going to be fairly selective in who they allow to share sequencing with them. Uh, and then these folks who are going to be on shared sequencers are going to be folks who are like, well, I I really want to be on a shared sequencer with Arbitrum because that's kind of, you know, that's where all the action is. Um, but Arbitrum doesn't want me to be <laughs> sharing their sequencer. And so there is kind of a little bit of like, you know, uh, people want to be part of a club, but the, the clubs they're gonna be invited to are not the clubs they want to be a part of. I think though, if you have any desire to decentralize the execution, you effectively have, you kind of have to have this kind of sense in which anyone can do it. Yeah, I, I think that's, kind of the bigger point people make. I mean, that's like always like kind of the classic criticisms of LL2s is like, you know, haven't we kind of just gone all the way full circle where now we have like a, just a single computer processing all the transactions and like, you know, we have one point that, you know, does go down not infrequently and, and can censor uh, transactions. And so it's like, yeah, it's it's not as bad as, as uh, you know, sort of having arbitrary state writing capabilities, but there are sort of, you know, downsides to having sort of a single um, sequencer. And so I think that's kind of more the angle that that I, I guess I think of this uh, uh, coming from in terms of benefits. But to your point around like performance, like it feels like we're we're, we're so far from um, being at a point oh, where. But decentralized sequencers and shared sequencers are two like totally orthogonal things. No, sure, but I, think, I, I think I guess one, that one will that, cause the like I can't ban, I can't say I can't join the club problem, and then the other one will kind of be like. Where most the income is. Wait, 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 why would why would like if if uh, if 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 zk sync has decentralized sequencer, uh, why would that have any impact on the I can't join the club problem, right? Like they, they can still decide with decentralized governance. No, you can't join our club. I mean, theoretically, the shared sequencer itself should be allowed to be joined by anyone who's a sequencer member in one. Like if you had a decentralized sequencer, I can't give you any of the shared guarantees unless all the pools of possible sequencers is overlapping because otherwise I'll lose some of those guarantees. So, right. so I, I, right. I think that's like, if you actually are decentralized, then anyone can always give these other guarantees. You can't, you kind of, so I'm saying the decentralized sequence, the, the desire to decentralize a sequencer will cause the, the, the shared part to not be as clubby as, as you might think is my guess. So, okay, let me let me understand your mental model here. So you're saying, let's say that optimism, let's say OPSAC, uh, optimism mainnet, moves to a uh, a decentralized sequencer, not a shared sequencer. Okay, they move to a decentralized sequencer. You're saying that once they have a decentralized sequencer, then 
anybody will be able to say, hey, I want to add myself to the shared sequencing uh, conduit um, so that I'm also, you know, being being entered into the same decentralized sequencer. Um, wh why would that be the case? Why wouldn't it be the case that the, you know, plurality of the people who are sequencing for uh, OP stack would say, no, we want to, we, we strictly only want to have one blockchain that we're sequencing, or we want to have three, or we want to have five, and we're not inviting you to that five. I, I mean, I think if they're doing a free trade agreement with Arbitrum, like they're 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 like sharing, like in order to give those atomicity guarantees, whenever to any application that requests it, to have that like liveness for that, they effectively have to let anyone in the Arbitrum sequencing pool sequence who is sequencing at that time be providing the shared guarantee on the leg on the other leg, right? Like, so so I think I believe Arbitrum already has, does have this implemented for having multiple sequencers rotating like for epochs it's fixed epochs so like unlike oh i see i see so if it's your epoch you could if as long as you're also on the arbitrum like it's your epoch on arbitrum and your epoch yes. on, on optimism then in that moment that you line yeah. up on both uh, yeah, rotations yeah, exactly. you can be the shared sequencer yeah, yeah. that's that's kind of where i i kind of think if, if they really are going to decentralize that the shared part ends up having having to inherit that property Kind of okay. I see what you're. I see your point. Sorry, Tom. I interrupted you. No, no. I, I was was pretty much. I think it's more like um, it, it feels like we're so far uh, from sort of the performance required for these things to be sort of mainstream and successful to then I think consider you know basic performance degradation for the sake of decentralization. That um, it, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it just also feels like a thing that yes, we should get to in the roadmap, but like not as as sort of critical. I, I kind of agree that like it's a little bit web vanny in that you probably need applications that are really demanding it, right? Like first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the, the amount of times I've heard the hotel and train problem as an explanation of why we need this is uh, telling that, that right now this is uh, more an intellectually interesting problem than it is like a, you know, the, the most important thing. That well, well maybe, right maybe if we step back from this infrastructure kind of, Conversation. What are the applications that you think you're most excited about that are coming in this format? Right, because there's a ton of them coming out. In 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 this format, like being app chain like rollout, wires cross, like yeah, app chain rollout. Oh, I, well, I think we've established that. Like, I am not as bullish on app chains sure. as as you are. I mean, I look. I I think DYDX moving to Cosmos is really interesting. I'd love to see how that plays out. I think right now the DYDX. They have a lot of confidence that they're going to be able to pull people away from Ethereum and move into their own infrastructure. Um, I think that'll be an interesting experiment to see how um, how how robust this sort of app chain thesis is um, for you know a, a product that has really strong brand, really strong user base, really strong metrics like DYDX. Um, yeah, what what are you guys seeing? Are, are there things that you guys are excited about that you think are interesting app chain opportunities? Is that a no? I'm hearing silence. Well, let, let, let's continue this one on the next show. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. We're over, and I think um, I think uh, we're we're starting to flag a little bit. Okay. We're we're a bit over time, so we're we're going to call it there. Uh, but interesting times in L two land. Uh, we'll, we'll, this is a story that we'll continue checking in on as it continues to evolve. For now, that's it for this week. Thank you, everybody. Mm -hmm.